Yeah, I remember back in my early days of development, I was storing images in the database. That was a fun trip. Uh, that, that was back before like I knew that like no, never ever do that. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash RubyRogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash RubyRogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jason Sweat. Hello. Dave Kimura. How's it going? I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out, I have rebooted Ruby Rogues Parlay into a Slack channel. So if you're interested in that, uh, come check it out. We also have a special guest this week, and that's uh, Chandan. And I'm not even going to try and say your last name. Chandan Junjunwal, but first name is fine. Awesome. So do you want to give us a brief introduction, who you are, what you're about? Sure. So I'm a founder of Federal Technology, which is uh, currently helping many uh, startup and medium-sized business developing their uh, web and mobile application. We start from idea phase and we do design and building the scalable mobile and web applications. So I started my career around eight years back when I was working with IBM as a DBA, where I mainly worked on C++, Perl, and DB2. And then web development and mobile development, I was pretty, I was pretty much engrossed in it, and I start, I joined like few companies which were working primarily on Ruby on Rails, and. Since then, since last four and five years, I had been working primarily on Ruby and Rails. I started with version 1.9.1 and Rails version 3.1.8. And after that, I have pretty much used all the Ruby and Rails versions. And I have developed many applications like uh, in e-commerce or education domain or insurance, finance, healthcare. And in my previous company, I was working as a CTO. So, I mean, doing a couple of applications, that's where I found that the client, uh, customer wanted uh, something which is pretty much scalable. So, uh, that's where I landed up with different set of technology and uh, I started working on DynamoDB and Rails. Nice. And I ran across your article on how to set up DynamoDB and Rails. I think I found it on Reddit. 
And and I'm wondering because I, I don't know how many Rails developers or Ruby developers are super familiar with DynamoDB. So do you kind of want to give us the the ten thousand foot view on what it is and how it works? I know that it's NoSQL, but I, mm -hmm. I don't know if people know much more beyond that. Yeah, you are absolutely right. So uh, I would say majority of the Rails developer works in uh, Postgres or MySQL or uh, other relational database. The reason is it provides active record which uh, out of box integrates your model along with those database adapters. So uh, like once and the other region is Ruby on Rails is picked up by many startup or founders who are actually implementing their ideas and bringing it to a, scale, a scalable product. So if you talk about like Airbnb or Twitter, they all started with Ruby on Rails and they started with uh, some RDBMS like MySQL uh, uh, and other stuff. Uh, so, but there's a point where you actually want to scale your application and the uh, scale at which like Airbnb or Twitter works, uh, they certainly need to uh, go, uh, resort to something like uh, NoSQL database. So I would say out of 100, more than 80% of developers, they're mostly working with RDMS uh, uh, databases. And for remaining 20% of the application where they need really uh, their startup or product is really hit and they want to capture a large amount of data. So that's where they go with NoSQL. And in NoSQL, there are plenty of options like uh, MongoDB or say Cassandra or, or DynamoDB. So the benefit with DynamoDB is, if, uh, is that uh, it's a kind of hosted application provided by AWS. So if we go with uh, MongoDB, AWS does not provide uh, MongoDB infrastructure. So we can take resort of uh, any third party hosted MongoDB or we can install directly on our EC2 instance. And uh, with Cassandra, it's a few, um, in, it requires a lot of infrastructure setup and costing, and you'll have to have a team which is kind of maintaining it on a day-to-day -day basis. So DynamoDB takes all those pain out of uh, your team, and you no longer have to focus on managing the infrastructure. You use it as a, a service. Uh, where you can scale uh, directly via either clicking or uh, they also offer a dashboard where you can simply edit some configuration. You can create their uh, tables either via API or from their dashboard. You can scale depending on like how many, how many read capacity you need or write capacity you need per second you need. So overall, I would say that uh, apart from scalability and all other stuff, it takes a lot of burden uh, offloads a lot of burden from your development team to uh, like uh, uh, to a hosted service, which is uh, pretty much why actually for a couple of last projects I have integrated DynamoDB uh, instead of going with uh, Mongo or Cassandra or any other NoSQL database. John, and I have a question. Yeah. Let's say you're working on an app that you have a reasonable expectation is going to get big eventually and you're going to have to scale it. Do you think it's a good idea to start with a regular SQL database and then switch to um, switch to a NoSQL database when the situation calls for it? Or do you think it's better just to start with a NoSQL database from day one? So I would say it depends on a couple of factors. One thing is certainly for many of the applications, they start with uh, RDBMS. 
mainly because uh, I mean they first want to get traction and then probably switch to something like NoSQL, which is recommended if uh, uh, if you see that uh, the incoming data, the scalability, and you have decided that uh, I mean you have projected at least that what will be the usage for like next six months or a year, and. Uh, the second thing, uh, second thing is familiarity. In most of the cases, if you go to market, uh, most of our developers are very much familiar with uh, RDBMS, uh, the SQL queries, how to design the database. So in those cases, uh, switching to NoSQL might cost you uh, figuring out the right developer who can easily work with it. But at the same time, say if you are building some media application and you're pretty much kind of anticipating based on, say you had some some protocol uh, prototype ready and you experimented it and you can see that there's a huge data coming in. For example, say uh, the feed application or uh, say messaging application where you know that uh, there will be a lot of chat happening. Then though you can accommodate that in RDBMS, but uh, I would probably not recommend if you anticipate that uh, say next six months, you are going to hit a huge number of users. So is SatamoDB really geared towards a replacement for the RDMS, or can it also be used as a caching mechanism or a cache store? It's, uh, I would not say replacement exactly. Again, it depends from application and from developer's perspective. Like in one of the application, what I did was I integrated both. Basically, I had Postgres as main database, but those segments where I could see that there's a lot of activity happening and uh, the database will keep growing uh, at very large pace. So there I plugged in DynamoDB to ensure that those uh, user activity uh, uh, actions will be logged in DynamoDB uh, with eventual consistency. And the remaining part of the application were handled using RDBMS like user authentication or uh, like different kind of profile data and all of this stuff. So it's not that you have to use a replacement. You could, uh, I would say the better word to say is, uh, I mean, so for the part where you can see a killer correlation and uh, you see that there's a certain uh, limit or to that growth, like number of user, if you talk about Reddit, so the number of user is like, uh, though it has increased uh, exponentially, but at the same time, the number of posts increases even uh, way at a way higher rate. So probably for user authentication and all user profile management, you could use RDBMS and uh, uh, for post management, all other stuff, you might want to use DynamoDB. Having said that, uh, even for user, you can use DynamoDB as so just a choice and how do you design and configure your database. But in many applications, what I've seen is uh, I have used like combination of these mainly because uh, the, the startup or the company were itself not pretty sure that how the user registration or traction will suit up. But they were pretty sure that the kind of interaction these users will do will be like uh, each user will have like a pretty huge interaction and uh, uh, the rate which uh, at which the user base grows, the number of interaction will be like at least say 100 or 1,000 times more than that per month. That's interesting. Yeah, I can definitely see where that could be useful if you have something like a paper trail log where you keep 
different versions of things, you know, right. that database table could grow exponentially as your number of users increase. So having something like that offloaded to DynamoDB could definitely help your SQL performance. Right. And the other huge cases could be like if you're building a game. So if you're like a building leader, a leaderboard or like a capturing like uh, who is on the top, etc. So the, there as well, you could uh, use these two database in tandem. The other huge case could be voting application where uh, say you have a lot of user voting on something. There you could easily use DynamoDB, which could, uh, I mean, using the leverage of partisan and all of this stuff and horizontal scalability, you can basically scale quite a lot. But yes, the logging system could, uh, the logging application, which you just now uh, give an example of, is really very good uh, huge case for this case. So then is this something that you would want to use? It sounds like you might want to just use it in tandem with an RDE BMS system. How do you decide if that's a good fit or if you actually want to use this for all of the data in your system? So there I would say, like in earlier question, we had discussed whether we should select DynamoDB or RDBMS. So the place where we say that this application is going to be a hit from day one or the number of data which will be coming, and also it depends on the development team you have. So say everyone is pretty much familiar with DynamoDB or any other NoSQL database, and they are uh, uh, they find it easier to like... Uh, a design a, a query and all of that stuff. So that's where they can use uh, directly DynamoDB. But in many applications where you start with, say, uh, a startup or mid-site business, I see that the combination of these two have worked. And also the other benefit is uh, when you start using like two database, you think in terms of microservices or service-oriented architecture. So like uh, if you talk about Netflix or Amazon, everyone uses it. So the benefit uh, really boils down to one thing that uh, you could use certain thing with RDBMS, certain thing you use with uh, NoSQL. If you feel that your application uh, is like going to be everywhere uh, like uh, DynamoDB. So at one, at couple of situations I have seen the, uh, I mean, the client wants that uh, I mean, instead of handling two databases, let's go with uh, one NoSQL database. Hey, one other thing that I've been trying to figure out, and I, I just didn't have enough time to really dig deeply into how DynamoDB works. Is this a document store or is it more like Cassandra or something else where you have sort of columns and... So it's uh, you can say like key value pair or document store. It's, uh, I mean, the place uh, it is being used is mainly like if you want to go with Cassandra, you could use DynamoDB. In DynamoDB, uh, I mean, though the terminology is a bit different, but uh, having said that, you could actually implement the same thing in uh, Cassandra, in DynamoDB, or even in RDBMS. It's just uh, uh, about uh, the terminology and the way you design the database. Like in DynamoDB, you have something like... Uh, has key and so range key and the remaining data fits into like uh, I mean you cannot call it column basically but uh, you can basically define a correlation between the two okay for sure so what are some of the pitfalls with using DynamoDB so some of the gotchas that we may need to look out for right so 
DynamoDB, when we design the database of uh, like different tables of DynamoDB, there are a couple of things which we really need to uh, consider. Uh, for example, it provides you a, lo a local secondary index or global secondary index, but uh, there are certain limitations. Uh, like in RDBMS, when we design a table, uh, when we want to, uh, we see that there's a query pattern, we define indexes on top of that so that uh, the RDBMS uh, database engine can decide that how to query the table. But here, what we have is uh, we define local secondary index at the time of creation of the table. And once it's created, it cannot be deleted. So, and once you create the table, you cannot uh, create local secondary index later. So in that case, if you need an index, you have to define a global secondary index. So, and also the size of local secondary index should be lesser than 10 GB at any point of time. And the other, uh, other thing which we need to take care of is like read capacity unit and write capacity unit. Uh, Basically, whenever you define a table, uh, essentially these things will play an important role, mainly because uh, you you basically subscribe to these units from DynamoDB. So say you needed a 1000 read capacity unit per second, but uh, somehow there was a user spike, then, uh, then basically uh, it will result in exception. Now DynamoDB provides uh, a five minute uh, buffer basically if, uh, for anything any unused capacity but uh, for those kind of instance you really need to gauge your usage that uh, how much you exactly need and on the top of that you could add something extra but you cannot basically go limitless because it will cost you something so the number of read capacity unit write capacity unit based on that your expense will increase. The other thing is with local secondary index and global secondary index also you need to define uh, RCU and WCU. The other caveat is like uh, whenever possible one should always do batch write or batch read otherwise uh, doing that sequentially will increase your network latency. One other thing which we have to keep in mind that maximum item size which DynamoDB can handle is 400 KB so if you're you are storing like huge file and all other stuff. What you might want to do is you might want to store them in somewhere in say S3 and you can add a pointer in your uh, DynamoDB table so that you don't actually store that huge file inside your database. Instead, you just keep a pointer to that. And uh, uh, basically, uh, when we define re uh, read capacity unit and write capacity unit and all this stuff, we also define the partition. And say, let's say today you needed, uh, say, a hundred uh, read capacity unit and hundred write capacity unit, but later you decided that I need two hundred. Then the good thing about DynamoDB is it does everything in background, so there's no, uh, there's no unavailability. Your service will remain available, and on the background, it will create another partition, and as soon as it's available, it will switch from the earlier partition to the new. Uh, newly created partitions. So essentially you can say it's highly available. And the other good thing is like it automatically creates three, three time replication across different zones. So you don't have to basically maintain that. In case of Cassandra, you will have to maintain all the replication logic, uh, all the replication servers. 
and at the same time like if you want to increase the capacity of or throughput then you may have to tinker a bit but uh, uh, dynamodb basically takes this burden on their, themselves and you don't have to care about them and other important thing is like when we create uh, a dynamodb table probably you might want to ensure that it uh, reside in the same zone where your application uh, resides mainly because uh, AWS provides a, I mean, couple of zones where you can create different uh, asset or different service. You can subscribe to different services. And uh, to test uh, what should be the capacity, probably you have to uh, look at like you could. One thing you could do is you can install the downloaded uh, development version of DynamoDB, and also you need to have some metrics to gauge that efficiently. which comes with practice so that's where i said that it again depends uh yeah, many many uh, applications start with rdbms and then when they see that there's a certain number of throughput which need to be increased and scale they plug that that's where they plug dynamodb and there are places where we already know that these many writes or read will happen then uh, we uh, plug dynamodb at that place and uh, so that's uh, i mean defining rcu wcu is very critical ensuring that you do batch write and batch read will certainly be beneficial selecting the right zone is also very beneficial ensuring that the you don't store the data uh, which could be uh, like which could exceed uh, 400 kb defining partitioning local secondary index and global secondary index is equally important Yeah, I remember back in my early days of development, I was storing images in the database. That was a fun trip. <laughs> that was back before like I knew that like no, never ever do that. You know, I used to do that same thing as well and people told me not to do it and I did it anyway for a long time because I thought it actually made sense. And I think now that I was probably wrong, but I'm just curious your take on that. This is a little bit of a tangent, but why don't we store images in the database? <laughs> Reason I would say that uh, there are better places to store them, which is faster, cheaper, and basically, if you store that in your database, your query becomes uh, basically retrieving the data and like writing takes time. Basically, you essentially, I mean, the user can, I mean, there are better strategy like CDN. or s3 so you can retrieve those asset faster but you if you retrieve from database uh, it essentially brings your application i mean the in terms of performance down yeah yep and that's pretty much you know what i was told and i think those are good reasons and now i don't i don't put the images in the database anymore my reasoning back then was that images are just data and so it makes sense to put them right in there and you can enforce consistency more easily if you do it that way but i don't think those were very good reasons the the other reason i could add here is like if you want to resize i mean these days there are multiple screens different screen sizes and say you want to fetch a proper size of image based on the user device screen so in that case resizing and all other stuff inside the database retrieving them can be cumbersome and where do you store those different sizes again you will keep adding different columns and will you will be storing those different sizes of images so instead of doing that the s3 or any other uh, image storage on the cloud is a good uh, option because you could easily retrieve you could write different files without affecting your database performance 
Yeah, not to right. mention that you can start creating a lot of deadlocks within your yeah. database, and that's never fun either. Yeah, so that's also important point. Yeah. Here's another question for you, Chandan. So when I'm creating a new application, my mm-hmm. my default data store, my go-to data store, is PostgreSQL. Some people like PostgreSQL, some people like MySQL, some people use other RDBMSs, but I'm probably going to use something like that. I'm going to use some kind of RDBMS as opposed to something like MongoDB as my as my go-to. Do you think that that's kind of the way to go? Um, like, do you see it the same way that an RDBMS should be your 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 go-to default option and only use a NoSQL database if the situation is like specifically calls for it? Or do you think there is, is a good reason potentially for using a NoSQL database as your default go-to data store? So uh, uh, there are uh, two, uh, two important things to uh, note here is, uh, first thing is uh, if you can clearly define the relationship between the data. So if you have some data which is completely unstructured, if you try to store that in RDBMS, uh, it will be huge pain. Because uh, say if we talk about like logging and uh, if we talk about uh, the kind of media which gets generated every day to day life, if you try to model them in a resonant database, it will be pretty painful and eventually there will be a time when you don't know how to basically create correlation. So you will end up creating a web, I would say a spider web where uh, things will be lost and the performance will decrease drastically. And the second thing I would say is uh, the familiarity. Many times I have seen developers who find very much comfortable with RDBMS. And if you see your application does not have that kind of unstructured data or don't have that kind of scalability requirement from the beginning, then probably uh, you might want to start with RDBMS first and then later when the need arises, you could integrate uh, DynamoDB uh, or any other NoSQL database uh, for instance. But yeah, I think I would agree. Yeah, and, and one thing that I like, I hope that new developers understand is that NoSQL databases don't exist because SQL databases are now obsolete. It's something that's complementary to, to RDBMSs, and it's something that's like a different use case. It's not a replacement. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Compose is a fully managed database hosting with extra security, scaling, and performance. Hosted on dedicated SSD servers, you can pick from nine highly available databases, MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, Compose Enterprise comes with easy scaling, which means you can add additional nodes at any time. It's auto-scaled resources like storage, memory, and IOPS, RESTful APIs, central console to manage all your deployments, and premium support with guaranteed response time and priority ticketing. With Compose Enterprise, you can free up your time to focus on building your app instead of managing your database. Check them out at enterprise.compose.com. And if you try Compose, you'll get a free special edition t-shirt. Hurry, quantities are limited. That's enterprise.compose.com. Uh, I would not say RDBMS is obsolete. In fact, many applications still today, I mean, in fact, Facebook and Twitter also uses uh, uh, MySQL till date. It's just that the amount of data which is being generated uh, 
uh, I mean, say 10 years back, we did not have that amount of data generated. So we were pretty much happy with uh, RDBMS. But these days, apart from unstructured data, the amount or volume of the data which is being, being generated day-to-day basis, uh, I missed to mention this in my uh, like uh, in earlier question. Like when you have a lot of data generated on day-to-day basis, uh, if you go with RDBMS, uh, you could do sorting or partitioning, all other stuff. But eventually, there will be a point where it will fail because it's uh, I mean it's usually vertically scalable. Uh, sorry, uh, vertically scalable. But if we talk about NoSQL, uh, it's like at most of places you can do it horizontally scalable and uh, you could use some technology like MapReduce or Hadoop to ensure that. Uh, can you explain you can, why you? Sorry, can you explain what you mean by that horizontally scalable versus vertically scalable? So you, we have a table, say users table, and we keep adding a new user, or say we have a post table, and whenever someone posts, we keep adding that to same table. So as the number of posts will increase, say we have uh, like millions of rows, and we want to add more. We just need to increase the database size, or we could do something like sorting, so that uh, so from certain index to certain index, it will store to partition one and then partition two. But when we talk about uh, horizontally scaling, essentially you can say like uh, we have a several. Uh, I mean, you can think of this as a different way of sorting. But the way it works is uh, when we have horizontal scalability, where we keep a different boxes. So instead of having a database of say one terabyte, we have 100 GB of like boxes uh, connected via, say, Hadoop or Elastic Map Reduce, uh, or the, there are different solutions provided by uh, AWS, Google, and uh, all the big companies. So there we can basically uh, localize those things in those uh, boxes and query their data and basically write them accordingly. So that's where basically we can leverage uh, these kind of things and make things horizontally scalable. So if we talk about, say Facebook has a terabyte of data coming every day. So if they keep store, try to store that in database, uh, single database or single table, then they will have to keep increasing the overall size of infrastructure. So instead of doing that, we could have something as small boxes and we could have something like Elastic Map Reduce or Hadoop, which will process them parallelly. So what does it take to actually hook up a DynamoDB instance to a Rails app? Because in your notes, you said that there really isn't a mature solution for that. So you don't have like Mongoid or, you know, oh. an active record type thing for it. So I, when I was researching, I could find one uh, Dynamoid gem, uh, but there were certain limitations and it was, uh, it had a couple of open issues. So instead of using that gem, for MongoDB, you have something like MongoWide, which uh, is kind of mature enough. So whenever a user want to, a developer want to integrate uh, MongoDB with their Rails application, they might use MongoWide or other related mature gem. But as far as DynamoDB is concerned, the DynamoID gem has a couple of issues which uh, and a couple of limitations. So the best way we could integrate was uh, essentially use the SDK provided by AWS. And uh, uh, if you, uh, I mean, using that, uh, uh, probably uh, we could have, uh, uh, we have to basically follow a kind of uh, few steps which I have outlined in the blog, basically how to create different kind of tables, how to create those indexes, or how to create uh, the throughput and all other stuff. And 
uh, basically i would recommend their uh, using aws sdk the way we could integrate using uh, uh, the aws sdk is uh, certainly i mean we could configure a client and then add the required credential to secret.yml and we could create different kind of tables uh, using rake task and uh, one thing we must ensure uh, we should pay the attention to that we should not create initialize a several clients for dynamodb so this is gotch uh, a real gotcha basically many developer what they do is every time they have to interact with uh, dynamodb they create a client and then they retrieve the required information so instead of doing that the recommended way to do is create a uh, dynamodb client in your initializer and uh, interact uh, basically there should be only one instance of the client throughout the application and using this client uh, you should interact with all the tables so you do not end up creating multiple instances of something which is redundant and uh, uh, which is also a good design pattern dynamodb looks interesting now i definitely can see some uses for it so might be something I have to check out. I, I guess one thing that I did uh, see here that I was kind of curious, you, you kept talking about scaling with this. So where do you find the limit is for something like PostgreSQL or MySQL versus something like uh, DynamoDB? I mean, how big could you get? With uh, uh, DynamoDB, I would say almost there's no limit, mainly because uh, it also offers uh, elastic map reduce. You could, uh, to process real-time event, you could use... Uh, uh, DynamoDB streams, and uh, so there's no scalability in the uh, limit in terms of DynamoDB or any other NoSQL uh, solution. With uh, RDBMS, I would say uh, there was one application where we had like uh, almost, I would say, number of uh, posts uh, were hitting like uh, more than 100 millions or uh, at that point of time, we could see that uh, scanning through the table to retrieve the post from the, for different user or uh, uh, say uh, different action taken on those posts where uh, basically a lot, I mean, there was a lot of time where uh, there was the throughput was pretty bad or essentially the indexing was getting cumbersome. So that's where we could figure out that uh, either we archive the old data or we could probably move these to uh, DynamoDB with appropriate partitioning with respect to say monthly or yearly yearly key as key. So yeah, that was one point where we actually moved uh, a part of application from our natural RDBMS or Postgres to DynamoDB. Yeah, one other thing that I wanted to bring up here that you had in your notes was it's a NoSQL database, and a lot of these NoSQL databases implement eventual consistency. And it says that this has support for eventual consistency and strong consistency. Yeah, so basically, uh, when you call the API at that point of time, uh, you could uh, you could uh, set a flag whether you want uh, strong consistency or uh, uh, eventual consistency, and. Uh, the thing is, uh, when you ask for uh, strong consistency, it just takes uh, two re uh, two capacity units. So essentially, uh, like uh, if so, the benefit of eventually consi eventual consistency is uh, like certainly you do you don't need that high RCU or WCU, but at the same time you are happy with it. I'm uh, you are happy with a little bit delay. I mean, uh, say if you posted something, you are fine if it. Uh, it appears 
with others after say few millisecond or a second but there can be places like if we talk about bank transactions so we do not want uh, uh, something to happen with eventual consistency as soon as your account is debited uh, the other should be credited so that's where you need something a strong consistency where the business cost for consistent consistency uh, basically overcomes the cost for the extra uh, like extra spending on the infrastructure and uh, there's a one more thing uh, i could add like uh, the different uh, like good bad and ugly parts for with dynamo db mm-hmm. uh, out of which uh, uh, like uh, the good part i could say is a hosted highly scalable no sql database where you don't need to do any infrastructure setup aws uh, sdk which is provided by them supports almost all the major programming language and in java uh, they also have a uh, uh, like a inbuilt library which could directly be integrated with uh, java application uh, you don't have to maintain three kind uh, three times replication uh, so it's automatically managed and uh, dynamodb also provides like uh, dynamodb streams uh, where you could uh, process and pipeline the data flow the bad part i would say is uh, i mean you ne- really need to understand to go through the complete documentation it has uh, a good learning curve uh, because i would say the with uh, big power uh, with great power basically comes great responsibility so when uh, you are designing things you have to have a get- better understanding of what actually you are building what exactly you are looking for in terms of scalability read write etc and uh, you also have to keep in mind that uh, uh, there are few things which uh, can which uh, like local secondary index which can be created only at the time of creation of table but later you cannot change them you cannot change the hash key or range key once the table is already defined and uh, uh, the other thing is the number of local secondary index or global secondary index you create say you created five such indexes so whenever you write one time in the table it essentially gets written in those five indexes so essentially you are incurring five time cost so you cannot simply go ahead what uh, the kind of flexibility you have in rdbms you can create as i mean uh, as many indexes as you want though the more than five indexes are never recommended but you do not incur any additional cost but here there is a associated cost and uh, the ugly part i would say is uh, i mean uh, if you cross the read write uh, throttle limit your application will start throwing application uh, exception though there are ways by which uh, you could increase that but that might take couple of second for which your application will remain unresponsive and to define the wcu or rcu you really need to have a good understanding of what exactly you want to build and all the matrices to ensure that you subscribe to the right amount uh, ensuring that you don't incur too much cost at the same time you don't let your application fall in in, in, in the times of spikes all right well if there aren't any more questions about this let's uh, let's go ahead and head into some picks dear ruby developer are you sick and tired of working on crappy old legacy code bases There's got to be a better way. If you want to get a better job, here's what you can do. Find a technology that's really in demand, build a side project using that technology, and then use that side project as experience to get your next 
better job. I've done this myself several times, it definitely works. What I think is a really good technology to learn right now is Angular. Angular is really in demand right now and it's not going away anytime soon. I have a free guide to getting started with Angular and Rails at angularonrails.com slash rr. Good luck and enjoy this episode of Ruby Rogues. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have one pick. It's called Core UI, and it can be found at coreui.io. It's kind of like a admin dashboard or template for Bootstrap 4. I've been playing around with it on a new project, and I've been really impressed with it. It's one of the more well-documented admin templates that i found. It's free to use, and it's just an overall very pleasing experience. So a lot of the methods and stuff still follow the Bootstrap 4 layouts. So it's not like coming into a completely weird and different admin template that's confusing with all their internal nuances. So it's just very intuitive and it's pretty. Nice. Jason, what are your picks? I got just one pick. It's a book called Database Design for Mere Mortals. I think I've actually mentioned it on the show before, but it seems especially pertinent right now. I'd heard about it like 10 years ago and I finally bought it and it's pretty good. It was mostly a review for me at this point, but if you're relatively new to um, database design, it could be really, really good. And there's also some really interesting like uh, historical stuff that was news to me also. So I really like that one. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. One of them is something that I've kind of been fiddling with for the last couple of days and that is VMware Workstation. I'm on Windows and I just picked it up and I've been setting up uh, VMs to try out a couple of different things. Uh, one of which looks really promising. It's called GoCD, which is a continuous deployment, continuous integration system. It's written by ThoughtBot. And yeah, I I think it looks really awesome. So yeah, so I just started setting up my pipeline on GoCD and I just fired it up on a VM since I don't really need to run it out on the cloud for anyone but me. I'm, I'm really digging it. So anyway, I'm going to pick both of those. And then the last thing is, is just a quick reminder about Ruby, Ruby Rogues Parlay, which is now a Slack channel. So if you want to go jump in, you can. My vision for this, if I can just take a couple of seconds to talk through it really quickly, is I want to kind of create a community around the show. We had that on the forum for a while, but the forum kind of turned into a ghost town. But one thing that I would like to do in addition to that, so I have a Keeping Current channel in there right now. And so it posts from Reddit and Ruby Weekly and a few other places that I found on the web that provide good places for information. And then the other thing that I I really want to do is I want to set things up so that we can start having experts out there from the community come in and speak to us on a regular basis. But in order to get some of the top people, you have to pay a speaking fee, which is fine. I mean, they're awesome, so they're worth it. But paying that out of pocket is a little bit tricky. And so what I plan to do is I plan to take the money that's coming out of that and pay for the speakers. Yeah. So I'm hoping to do a call every month. I probably won't have one for the month of June, but probably will for the month of July. I may do a couple of workshops in there during the month of June myself, just so, you know, if people have an interest in a particular topic that I can help with, uh, we can do that. But yeah, so that's, that's one thing that I'm, I'm looking at doing there. And then finally, the last thing that I'm going to pick is Ruby Dev Summit. So a few people have paid for tickets or asked me about Ruby Remote Conf, which was supposed to be in a week or two. But, I, you know, I had trouble lining up the speakers that I wanted. And so I'm essentially postponing it and I'm going to do it more of a summit style and less of a conference style. 
which means that we're going to do it over the course of seven or eight days, probably over the course of a week. And what we're going to do is we'll just have a few talks every day and we'll have the speakers around to answer questions after the talks. And uh, I'm hoping to aim for a little bit more of a demo thing and a little bit less of a conference talk thing. And that way you can actually see people do interesting things. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested in that, go over to rubydevsummit.com and check it out. Chandan, do you have some picks for us? Just things you like, things you want to shout out about? Yeah, so it's interesting to know you have your work on uh, Ruby Dev Summit uh, and other stuff. And uh, uh, actually, we are uh, starting a Ruby tutorial session, uh, which will be like live. So if you want, uh, we can basically call, collaborate and uh, ensure that basically this is what we are planning to give to Ruby community so that the people can learn, discuss things and all of this stuff. So there was a session which uh, we aired like a couple of weeks back on like uh, using DynamoDB with Rails. And so let me know your thoughts. Uh, we can probably collaborate on that and basically provide uh, training or expert talks on different topics on Ruby and Rails. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Ruby Dev Summit, I should mention, is going to be free. I am going to be selling all access passes, which basically get you downloads of the videos and stuff. But if you want to just come and watch the, the talk slash demo and then participate in the Q&A, that'll, that'll all be free. So Sure. Well, if people want to follow you, Chandan, or find out what you're working on, I know you're on Medium. Are there other places that people should go to see what you're doing or if they want to hire you for something like this? Sure. Uh, I am reachable on Twitter with Chandan J. I, you can reach me on Chandan at uh, FidelTechnology.com. And uh, I'm active on Facebook, Twitter, Medium, and email. Or uh, you can reach me via our website. And I'm also active on different Slack channels. So I'll just post those details uh, via Note or Skype. Yep. Sounds great. And just for the people who heard your email address but weren't quite sure what that was, that's Chandan at Faildale Technology. Yeah, so uh, I'll just uh, announce Chandan at F-A-O-D-A-I-L-T-E-C-H-N-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Okay. Yeah, it's just something that I know if they heard the name, they wouldn't necessarily know how to spell it out. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for coming. Thank you, everyone. We'll Talk wrap, to you all later. We'll wrap it up. We'll catch you all next week. Bye, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.